Good morning. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day uh, to all our mothers out there. Uh, looking forward to, of course, being with my mother after all this is done and, and uh, of course, eating and, and uh, goofing around, but we're excited for that. Uh, if this is your first Mother's Day with us, uh, you may as well know that I don't believe it's my responsibility to make it a happy Mother's Day for your mother. Uh, I believe it's your responsibility, so I won't be doing a Mother's Day special uh, from this platform. Uh, I'll be doing it afterwards with my family, so I hope that that doesn't offend any of you, um, but that's just the way we do it here. Um, yeah, so for now, we're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 13, but before I do that, I need to introduce our latest staff member to you, uh, who we have hired as an office manager, which is just a... Uh, an inflated word for someone who babysits pastors and keeps everything orderly. Uh, but anyway, I want to welcome uh, and have you welcome uh, Miss uh, Margaret Strobach uh, to the team here at Calvary Chapel. And so we look forward to how God will use her, <clears throat> uh, hopefully synergistically with uh, the rest of us. So be praying for her as she'll have to be putting up with me and Roger and uh, give her a big welcome when you get that chance. So anyway, I don't have much to, to put out except hang in there, and uh, I think we'll be together uh, sooner than later, and, uh, and that'll be a sweet time. So, well, let's go ahead and begin. I'm going to be reading uh, God's Word to you from the New King James Bible, and uh, we're going to be reading uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. We're going to get a long ways today. So this is what the author says. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Let's pray. Well, Father, as always, we're thankful for your word. We thank you that it's eternal, it, it transcends uh, everything of this world, it will be with us in the next world. We thank you that it's good, it's authoritative, it's wise. And, uh, and Lord, under our current circumstances, we need the instruction of your word. Uh, we need it attended by your grace and uh, by the energizing of your spirit. And Lord, I, I thank you that your word is always relevant. And I pray that whatever your spirit would have to say to us this morning, that we would have ears to hear, that we would be attentive and our hearts would be soft. And so speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these two verses, the author is encouraging these struggling believers, excuse me, to avoid covetousness, to be content, to be assured, and to be bold and fearless. He begins with covetousness, which is here, this particular Greek word is the, literally the love of silver, the love of money, which leads to the things that money can buy, but we don't want to forget that money can also buy opportunity, reputation, and position. And then the author continues with the encouragement to be content, that is to be satisfied with what you have followed by the assurance of God's promise that Christ will never abandon us, concluding that with great boldness we can be fearless, seeing that, that God is our helper. 
Now, I think it's very interesting how the author began with covetousness and then he ended with not fearing man. That's not how we would typically lead a discussion about covetousness and contentment. But even so, the scriptures are relevant. And I think that it'll come together as we talk about this. And so it's, it's really valuable at this point that we take in the historical context uh, in order to understand the text itself. We, if we ignore the historical context, we won't be able to make heads or tails as to why the author went from covetousness and contentment to assurance and boldness in the same thought. So let me remind you of the historical background of these believers, and it comes out of Hebrews 10.34, where the author addressed the sad reality that these people had been deprived of their personal belongings, belongings that were essential to their livelihood. Essential because it wouldn't be worth mentioning otherwise, and because most people's possessions at that time were essential to their livelihood. Almost everything they owned was related to how they lived. You know, the majority of the the people in the ancient world didn't have the excess that Westerners have today, such as four-wheelers and campers and boats and and bicycles and cars, well, less two or three or four of them, uh, multiple pair of shoes and an endless change of clothing and so forth. People typically owned their basic needs and then their tools of trade and not much else. So if you were a farmer, you were lucky. You were extremely probably wealthy to own a yoke of oxen for your fields. Most were limited to hand tools. If you were a carpenter, you had the rustic tools of the day, nothing, no power tools. If you were a tent maker like Paul, you didn't have a sewing machine. Everything was hand-stitched. People made do with what they had, and that's about all they had, and it was everything to them. That's the historical context in which the author was speaking. It was to these people who had been deprived of their personal property that he told not to be covetous, but to be content with what they had left, to trust in the Lord's promises, and not to be afraid. You know, forget about what you had, he might be saying, it's gone. And be satisfied with what you have. The Lord will not abandon you, so don't be concerned. That's what they heard, but it's probably not what they wanted to hear, just as we don't always like to hear what the scriptures say to us. You know, it didn't sound very considerate of their circumstances. It it seemed to lack sympathy and empathy. You know, why would he say it like that? It's so insensitive. Doesn't he understand what they've gone through? And, And that's just the thing. Of course he did. He's already been imprisoned for Christ, and he suffered greatly for the faith. So he's actually talking to his peers in persecution about things he's learned and things he's doing in the context of suffering and of loss. He's one of them. You know, Paul was the same, uh, saying to the Philippians, he says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4, 13 through 14. You see, Paul learned to be content with whatever he had and to be content in whatever circumstance he faced. So I guess the secret was, or the question we should ask is what was his secret? 
And his secret, as he says in the text, was trusting in Christ who strengthened him and seeking satisfaction in Christ alone. Christ was all in all. So when things were given to Paul, Paul didn't get attached. And when things were taken away, it was no big deal. I think that Paul had come to a place where he figured that whatever he had was given by the Lord and whatever was taken away was no longer given by the Lord. So either way, he remained satisfied because he found his satisfaction in Jesus. He was content with whatever he was experiencing. He wasn't relying on his own strength, but the strength that had been given to him. And we find this same attitude uh, with Job when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, John, or rather Job 121. And then Paul actually explains in Philippians 3, I think really how he, he came to this place in his life, saying that Christ had taken hold of him and Paul was doing everything he could through difficult experiences to lay hold of Christ. Paul learned how to be satisfied with Jesus through difficulty. He learned to trust Jesus' promises that he would never abandon him. And so Paul learned not to be afraid. Just as we must learn to lay hold of Christ as our sovereign, wise, and benevolent king through the things we endure. And I think that what many of us at this point need to hear is that we need to be living out the logic of our faith, that God is who he is and, and that we belong to him. You know, we looked at all of this already in Hebrews 12, where suffering, persecution, deprivation, illness, or whatever else is being used by God is being used to demonstrate to us our sonship, that we actually belong to him. He says, the author said that we suffer in order that we might be partakers of his holiness, and we bear by those things the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So what we suffer, what brings us pain, the things that we're deprived of, uh, God is using it to prove that we belong to him and is using it to make us more like him. So if difficult time comes, like the ones we're in, if it's not making us better Christians, if it's not making us more useful for God, there's a problem with our faith. And, and I would say, quite frankly, if, if we're not becoming better Christians through all of this, we're in danger of falling away if it gets worse, just as these Hebrews were in danger of falling away as things were getting worse for them. Typically, where there's a lack of faith, there's the presence of fear, and where there's the, a surplus of fear, there's a, a disparity which causes people to behave irrationally and inconsistently with their confession. If you're in despair, the truth is you're not prepared for whatever God has planned, whether it's an opportunity to preach the gospel of, of hope uh, or to better disciple those around you. And I think most significantly, you're not ready to meet the Lord in the air when he comes. You're just not ready. But Jesus said constantly through the gospels, be ready. And according to him, nothing says ready like trust and obedience. So trust the Lord and obey his word. You know, not, you have not been abandoned. His, his promises are actually being fulfilled to all of us right now. Paul told Timothy, he said, in having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And he means satisfied, First Timothy 6, 8. And, and you know, it's funny, we like to quote passages like this. Uh, we know that such a disposition is noble, but in our hearts we're saying, you know, speak for yourself, Paul. There's no way that I could be satisfied with just food and clothing. 
You know, we're, we're afraid of having less than what we have, and we dread being reduced to having only what we need. Maybe you didn't catch that. We're afraid of having less than what we have, and we, we dread being re- reduced to having only what we need. That scares us. But if you have what you need, how has God's promises failed? And if you have more than you need, with an unquenchable desire for more, uh, the author would tell us that we need to beware of covetousness. You see, the author of Hebrews, he was worried about covetousness for a different reason than probably what, what we should be concerned about. And I think that what is on the horizon in America may be more in line with what uh, the context into which he was speaking. See, he was concerned that having been deprived of what they were used to having would make them vulnerable to covetousness. Saying something to this effect. And so now that you've been deprived of your material belongings, now is the time to beware of covetousness. Beware of your desire to have those things back because covetousness will only embitter your heart toward those that have wronged you and it will rob you of your happiness in Jesus. Now, I say happiness because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he, when he taught uh, the Beatitudes. He said over and over, blessed is he, and blessed literally means happy, uh, or oh how happy. Happy is the person, and Jesus was often talking about those who were suffering, those who were persecuted, those who were deprived. You know, money and material things are meant to be possessed by us, for our good and for God's glory, a perspective and practice that actually cultivates happiness. But when we're covetous, uh, we're possessed by the desire for more, which breeds unhappiness and ungodliness. And covetousness is something we're all prone to, all of us. It's a disease of the human heart, which is not a moral illness of the rich. It's common to all men. You know, the fact is some people are just good at collecting wealth and acquiring material things while others are not, but the disease of the heart is the same. You know, one person acquires those things while the other person wishes they could acquire those things, but both share the same disease. And the great danger with covetousness is that the host is typically unaware of the disease. And then when it's finally detected, most believers struggle admitting they have an insatiable love for money or the unquenchable desire for more stuff. For a believer, that's an ugly thing to confess. But normally people are unable to detect it, even as they continue to acquire things or, or never cease lusting after them. You know, what they do, according to them, is not covetousness. It's always the reward of their labor. It's what they've always worked for. Besides, it's for the family. It's for hosting. It's only the 15th pair of shoes Nothing else would match my latest outfit. I didn't like last year's latest sedan. It didn't have all the features I wanted. And on and on it goes. The appetite for more, for bigger, for nicer, is never satisfied. There's no restraint. There's no moderation. It's just more. They are possessed by their possessions or if they can't get the possessions, they're possessed by the desire for them, which is called slavery. And then because of the deceitful nature of sin, they cannot see it for what it is, and they'll always turn on you for pointing it out. It's a deadly sin. But I think that what makes our current passage so difficult to swallow is that these people are in danger of coveting 
what had formerly belonged to them. And the Holy Spirit says to them, beware of covetousness and just be satisfied with what you have. Realizing by faith that in spite of what's happened to you, the Lord is enough and he will not abandon you. And that's easy to say, but it's hard to swallow. You know, this uh, off-repeated promise from Scripture has everything to do with the nature of God and his relentless loyalty. You know, because he is faithful, he cannot abandon his people, no matter the difficulties they face. So listen, the danger these people faced was a covetousness driven by a shortage of necessities. Does that sound familiar at all with what's going on? They were afraid they would not have enough because it might be taken from them again. And if there had been toilet paper then, these would be the people that were hoarding it. They were in danger of being covetous, yeah, rather than being reminded of God's faithfulness. You know, the promise that God will never leave nor forsake is God's promise of provision and protection. His provision is protection. It's not simply the promise of his presence, Or that whatever happens, God will always be there to hang out with you. That's not what that means. God's presence is consequential. It's beneficial. Otherwise, the promise is worthless. Nobody would care about his presence if his closeness wasn't consequential, if it didn't have some benefit. You know, the promise, uh, as many of them are stated in the New Testament, it's stated here so that the reader would look back to where this promise is stated in the Old Testament so that we could see how it works out practically. You know, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 was for blessing, provision, and protection. That was the same promise to Abraham. To Jacob, also in Genesis 28, this same promise was for for success and protection. It was given to Joshua for military victory and conquest, Deuteronomy 31. It was passed to the nation of Israel for their prosperity and their necessities in the land of promise, 1 Samuel 12. It was given to Solomon for the building of the temple and for the establishment of the ministry. To Israel again in Isaiah 41, it was for strength, it was for deliverance, it was for provision. And then it was to the church in Matthew 28 for the spread of the gospel and the discipleship of God's people. Every time that promise is given, it's consequential. He's not promising to come hang out with us, only to uh, perhaps maybe observe our suffering. God isn't like that. The author is saying beware of covetousness and be conscious of the fact that God is our loving father. He's a sovereign provider. As Paul assured the Philippian church, he says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. So instead of looking at what you don't have, the author would tell us to look at who has us, who's possessed us. We belong to Christ. He has our life in his hands. And because of his character, he will not abandon you, but he will provide for you. So beware of covetousness, which is unbelief, and it's ungodly. And instead, trust the Lord who is faithful. And also, because he is faithful, the author says, verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. As as we said at the beginning, typically we would not see a warning about covetousness connected to the lack of fear of man in the same breath. But the circumstances here call for it. 
In the face of persecution, with the confiscation of their belongings, they could be confident in the Lord and not afraid of what their community would do to them. It was their community. And not because man is powerless to harm us, but because man is powerless in the ultimate sense. Christians should be a fearing people. Let me say that again. Christians have a moral obligation to be a fearing people, but not a man-fearing people. You know, fear should be one of our greatest qualities, according to the Proverbs. But our fear should have its proper object. Jesus sets all of this straight in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 10, 28. He's, in the context, he's sending his disciples out as sheep among wolves. He's promising them persecution and suffering. And he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. You see, because man, and Satan for that matter, cannot touch the soul, Jesus says, we're not to fear them. In fact, even our body is untouchable until the Lord allows it to be subjected to the hand of man or Satan. Be that as it may, our physical body, you know, no matter how it dies, it is temporary and it is disposable. But the soul is eternal and it's untouchable. It's completely off limits to anyone but the one who created it. But because the body is disposable, a disposable dwelling place for the soul, we should not fear what man or Satan can do to it. If God so decides, they can have it. They can have it. Because the sooner we're delivered from this body, the sooner we're delivered from pain and suffering and all of the sin that's associated with it. And the sooner we're absent from this body, the sooner we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Now, as scary and as unreasonable as that sounds to our body, it is the biblical perspective on the body. You know, while we dwell in it, we should use it for God's glory, but how much better to be absent from it? Now, let me quote Paul on this, lest I be accused of heresy. He says, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. Paul says that this, what he's just said, it is the perspective of faith. And when we live by faith in the truth of God's word, the benefits of being absent from the body eclipse our fear of man or of what the devil would throw at us or what nature would throw at us. But when we live in fear, we only concern ourselves what will, what will make the body uh, or the life of the body better as if this life is all that there was. But striving for the comfort of the body it is not wrong unless it distracts you from eternal realities and keeps you from glorifying God. But if being comfortable in this world keeps you from walking by faith and glorifying God, you'll care more about preserving the body than being present with the Lord. That is a great danger. 
You know, you'll live in fear of what man can do to you, of what COVID-19 can do to you, or what cancer can do to you, or what murder hornets will do to you. You'll be anxious about every conspiracy theory that's floating around on social media right now. But I think this is a good question. What if it's all true? What if it's all true? What if evil and powerful men are up to something? Think of it. What if you get corona and stung by the hornet followed by a cancer diagnosis? Then what? Should you act differently as a Christian? Should you act differently tomorrow? Would it make God less sovereign or loving? Would it somehow change God's directive for our lives regarding the great commission and the great commandment? The author of Hebrews is telling these persecuted and deprived believers to continue on as usual in spite of persecution and difficulty. He said nothing new to them that hasn't been said in all the other epistles or by Jesus or the saints of the Old Testament. And so what circumstance, you know, what form of government, what disease, what fulfilled conspiracy theory, what threat of death for man or from man or nature would justify the slightest change to our faith and conduct? Only fear would do that. But we're not to be governed by fear. We're to be governed by God by means of his word. And the truth is the stability of our minds, our sobriety should not be dictated by the circumstances around us. Our thinking is to be managed and to be directed and stabilized by the faithful word of God. It's the only thing that will endure all circumstances. It's the only thing that transcends every mess we find ourselves in. And as Paul says, the scriptures, the very breath of God, the mind of God, the will of God for our lives, no matter what happens. So let me illustrate this to you by way of Paul's example and his instruction. Because of the things that were going on in the first century, I would say still eclipse what's going on here. As Paul was making his way back to Jerusalem for the very last time, he met with the elders of the Ephesian church who knew he would never see them again. And he said this. He says, indeed, And indeed, now I know that you all, among who I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. The text says they were weeping. Therefore, I, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are satisfied, or I'm sorry, sanctified. Acts 20 25 through 32. Paul understood, he knew prophetically that all kinds of terrible things were going to happen to the fellowship in Ephesus. And he addressed it by saying, be watchful and give yourselves to God 
and the teaching of his word. In other words, be aware of this, be watchful, but continue as usual. Be aware of it. Be watchful, but continue as usual. Now let me give you another example that is is far more extreme. It's also from Paul. And in this section of scripture, Paul is instructing Timothy about what was on the horizon. And it is prophetic. He said this to Timothy. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. How so, Paul? Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. But you, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, Timothy, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now see, the chapter ends there. But it's not really where Paul ends his instruction for these perilous, unprecedented times. He continues saying, I charge you therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Paul was saying this, Timothy, in spite of all that will happen in in this pagan culture, with Nero as its emperor and Satan as the god of this world, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of from the word of God. And because it is the word of God, he says you must keep on preaching it and teaching it and living it. In spite of all that was coming, you guys, and it came, And it's still coming. There was no instruction to hoard toilet paper, to to doubt the promises of God. There was no instruction to fear evil men. 
Paul told Timothy, and the Holy Spirit is telling us to continue preaching the word and to continue living by its instruction. We, we have our marching orders and they remain until we find ourselves in Christ's presence. And just as the author of Hebrews was telling his audience not to be distracted by their lack of things, but to be satisfied with what they had and to keep trusting the Lord's promises and to not be afraid of man. Let us not get distracted. Let us stay the course. That would be trust in Jesus, obey his word, and you will be satisfied with him regardless of what happens. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's, it's always timely. And Lord, I'm sure that for many, because <clears throat> I know, Lord, the emails I get, the texts, the phone calls, Lord, people are just, they're concerned. Some are afraid. Some don't know what to do. So Lord, I pray that you would, you would captivate all of our minds. And some of us, I think, need to be shaken a little bit so that we can get our senses about us. Lord, all of us together as your people, more than any people on the planet, we need, we need to, to take a look at your word and we need to look at the things that are most simple and that's to trust you, to obey you, to encourage one another, to look to you. And so I pray that your word would speak to all of us in the way that we need it to right now and Lord, that we would either stay the course that we're on in our obedience to the scriptures, other of us, Lord, that we would get on track, we would think biblically, we'd trust you with our lives, and Lord, we would just be faithful. So Lord, thank you for your word. Energize us with your spirit. Give us your grace, we pray. And Lord, I pray for our mothers. We're thankful for them. Lord, your word says very clearly that our mothers are to be honored. And so I pray today that by their children, they would be blessed and honored. And uh, so just bless the day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys. And uh, again, hang in there. I think we'll be together sooner than later. Lord bless your day. Bye-bye.